All right, this morning's reading comes from Genesis. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer. He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go back to your father. Tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master of all in Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You may live in the land of Goshen, so you will be near me, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everyone with you. I will support you there. So you, your household, and everyone with you won't starve, since the famine will still last five years. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. After that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's have uh, just a, a word of prayer. Let us pray. God, for the spirit that is in this place, the spirit that continues to move us to give us first breath in the morning, we give you thanks. We would ask that you would be in this place, in this space that in which we gather to continue to challenge us to be faithful in the world, to be a loving presence, a just presence, and a people who continue to make connections between humanity and you, oh God. We thank you for the spirit that has brought us here today. May that same spirit guide the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts so they're acceptable to you. We pray all of this in the name of Christ and God's people say, amen. So if uh, anybody of you follow, uh, any of, uh, follow us on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter and all, those, all the places, uh, you'll see we got some comments this week about the title of this sermon. Uh, the grudges are fun. Uh, last week we got, actually, uh, probably last week's sermon on the resurrection, uh, we got a lot of uh, interaction and, and response from, from um, our worship yes, last week. But this past week, we put something out on Fridays that says, here's what the sermon in the scripture is going to be. And uh, we got a little bit of feedback because I think people were wondering, like, so is this going to be a pro-grudge sermon? Or is like, what, are we going to be anti-grudge? So to be clear... I am not, we are not pro-grudge, um, but also to be clear, we know that sometimes grudges, they actually make life easier. Sometimes they can be fun. Sometimes they can, uh, you feel, especially if you feel like you've been wronged, like you feel justified in holding a grudge. If you don't want to deal with somebody because you maybe feel wronged, you can, you know, holding a grudge allows you to not deal with, I mean, there's lots about this that I think uh, we would, uh, that, that makes sense for us and sometimes uh, makes uh, grudges uh, something we hold. I need to remind you all uh, that I've said, shared before, my family 
like we take grudge holding to an Olympic level sport. Like my grandmother, Grandma Reyes, who I've mentioned before, uh, it's no surprise to you, was like a serious grudge holder, held grudges for, um, you know, like years for people, uh, with people. And I don't know where she got it from. I don't know if maybe that personality helped to kind of help her survive the world, but she was a grudge holder. And that was passed down to my mother who we watch do that, and then every once in a while, I'll see that in myself, and I will call my mom and say, thanks, mom, because it's been passed down to me. I hope that we have, it's diluted with every generation, and I hope that we haven't, uh, we can kind of lessen it. But there are times where we can kind of see that holding a grudge makes some sense. We, every time I hear this Joseph story, you have to think about uh, who are you in the story, but also like how would you respond to any of this, right? It, when we, if you think about it literally and you think about the actuality of it, we are stepping into the space of the story now that is really much more, we're having, we're having technical difficulties, that's all right. Okay, we're cool, thanks. Um, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, sorry. So we, uh, with, with this story about Joseph and his brothers, right, you, you, you hear this story about, well, the brothers have decided they're jealous of Joseph because Joseph is one of the father's favorites, so they're going to cast him into this hole, or they were, gonna let, they were actually going to let him die. They were going to leave him and let him die. Well, Reuben takes mercy upon Joseph, says, no, no, let's not just outright kill him. Let's leave him in the hole, as if Oh, that Reuben, that's such a, you're, you're, the, you're the good son, right? I mean, and then, you know, but so if you were to think about all these things, like there's no brother that is good in this story because we all let this happen. So we, in this case, we kind of step out of this metaphor, right? We, we kind of step back and we think about what does it mean for uh, people to be jealous and move to the point where, um, you know, you're, you've taken uh, major actions against somebody. And so we have Joseph, who is the second to youngest. Does anybody remember who the youngest one is? Benjamin, there you go. Gold stars for Pat, right? So Benjamin is the youngest. Uh, so it's not, it, they're jealous not because of the youngest are getting extra attention. They're jealous because the father has shown, uh, has shown favor with Joseph, all that. So now flash forward many, many years, right? Joseph now is in, in the Pharaoh's court and has achieved um, uh, power and authority uh, and is now kind of fulfilled these things that God has said. And the brothers now come and initially, I mean, they don't recognize him, and then they do. Now, most of us probably put ourselves in Joseph's feet, in Joseph's shoes, right? Could you imagine if anybody did something terrible to you? I mean, not even getting to the point of just leaving you in a hole to die, right? Really, really bad. And you know, what would our reactions be? What have your reactions been when somebody has wronged you so much that you, you know, like, I, I can't imagine really being Joseph. Now, some would say, well, Joseph was fine now, right? Joseph could kind of be magnanimous because Joseph won in some ways. So he's like, I can be magnanimous now because you know, I have all this authority, I'm seeing the future, I, all these things, so I can, I can show a little compassion. 
But you know, I, I don't think I could be that magnanimous. I mean, it, I don't know if any of you could. If somebody left me to die in a hole, I don't care how much power I have or anything later on. I can't imagine that I'd be like, no, it's good. Like it all worked out. I, I, I just don't think that I could be in that space. And yet Joseph does. And so what I get out is in many ways that Joseph is, is saying to them, and this is the crux of the story for me, is that Joseph talks about God moving with Joseph through all of this. Now, I am not one that believes God intentionally places us in these, these kind of tumultuous, violent spaces just so we can come out better. I believe God's with us as these things happen. But Joseph is reminding them that God was with Joseph through all of this. And so part of this, this forgiving that Joseph does is in many ways removing anything that would hold back his brothers from experiencing God themselves. And if Joseph held on to that grudge, if Joseph held on to this idea that the brothers were not worth feeding and protecting and acknowledging, Joseph too would be held back from experiencing God in his life. So when I take this story, I always think about what's the part about this forgiving or or allowing these things to happen? And the, the important part of what that means for us is that oftentimes these things sit within our souls and it holds us back from experiencing God's fullness in our lives or in the lives of others. I say that for two reasons. One, how it affects us, right? Again, Joseph, if he would have held on to that, I mean, you know what it's like. You probably have somewhere in your whole, in your, in your spirit where you are holding on to a grudge or an anger and it sneaks up on you sometimes and you didn't even, maybe didn't even know it was there. But when it comes up, you just don't feel good about how that makes you feel. I think that's always our disconnect from God, that we are in some ways not allowing ourselves to connect to a larger divinity and presence in the world. That when I can't, when I'm holding such anger against somebody, that in some ways that, that does not allow me to, to, to acknowledge the divinity in another person. Now, it doesn't mean that I approve of what they did or I'm giving them, letting them off the hook, but it does mean that I'm not gonna hold that so much that it begins to eat away at my own soul and spirit. So in some ways I get Joseph, right? He could just hold on to that and we would all say, you are totally justified in just being angry all the time at your brothers. In fact, you would be justified if you did things to them they left you in a hole to die. And that's only because Reuben, the, the, the kind brother, said, let's not just kill him outright. So we would say, Joseph, you have every reason, but Joseph doesn't, he lets it go. He lets it go, which is something that I think allows him to continue to live into this narrative and story that he has said that God has been with him. So it allows him to continue to experience a connection to God that holding on to that he would not be able to. And then you have the brothers, right? Who come in some ways fearful, but I think, you know, f situations force them to want to be forgiven, to want to be um, in some way um, given uh, some release from this thing that they have done. And I don't know about you, but that is a terrible place to be. If any of you have ever known that you have wronged somebody and and what that does to your spirit and your soul, knowing 
that you did something wrong? What does it mean for us to sit with that for so long? And what does it mean when we're with that person or that community and we have to acknowledge that we've wronged somebody in a way that is genuine, right? Not the apologies that are like, I'm sorry that this happened to you, like as if we didn't have any, not these apologies that are really not about like um, acknowledging our participation in hurt, but really deeply to say to somebody, what I did harmed you, brought you pain, as a person of faith, what I did disconnected you from, from an experience of the holy in a way that I got in the middle of that. And so the, you have the brothers who are seeking to find some way, some absolution to this thing that I, I choose to believe has probably been eating them up for their entire lives. And so they come to Joseph and who knows, right? They too are probably thinking Joseph has every right to not offer us forgiveness. And yet they come to him and they simply offer themselves, which is what I think is, the, is, the, is what we should be hearing from this story is that we simply offer ourselves almost without um, assumption about what is returned. For the crux for me for forgiveness, if I were, if it's truly meaningful, if I were the brothers and I was seeking forgiveness for a wrong that I did, I'm going to seek that without expectation of being forgiven. I'm going to seek that because it is about my connection to God, not about approval even of the other person. Because what's happened in our society is I think we have made forgiveness and apologies transactional. We've made, created this commodifying of, this, um, of, a, of, of apologizing and forgiving, so much so that it's like, if I do this, then you should do this, and I'm not gonna do this unless you're going to do this. So I'm not gonna apologize unless you're gonna forgive me. Well, that's not a true apology then, right? Because that is just an exchange of, of, of uh, you're commodifying a relationship and so for me, what we hear out of this story is this purity in many ways of the brothers simply coming and saying, we place ourselves at your feet. We apologize. We are wrong for what we did. And you have Joseph that just simply says, okay. And, there, and for me, I, you don't hear like, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you, like, there's no um, reciprocation that is guaranteed or sought. It's simply people coming together and trying in their best way to make clear the way for God to be present. If we can get to that in the world, how much better would the world be? If we could get to the point in our individual relationships where we have wronged somebody and we simply go and acknowledge that wrong without the expectation that anything else happens, if we can simply be in a space where when we have been wronged, that we can simply let that go and not, again, we're not letting people off the hook or not holding people accountable, but we are simply not gonna hold on to that anger in a way that destroys our own spirit. How much less tired would we be? How much more joyful could we be? And most importantly, how much more can we see what God hopes for us in the world?
This story is about just that. A cleansing of relationship so that they can see the future that God bestows upon them. They know there will be struggle, but Joseph tells them that even through that famine on the other side, there is the promised land and there is new life and there is hope. And so if we can let this part of our relationship go in a way that no longer holds us back from experiencing God together, then we together move into that new day. Now, it's not easy for us to do, especially with people who are close to us and our families. It's not easy to do, especially in congregations that have been together for so long. It's not easy to do in work spaces where you have these weird, funky relationships. It's not easy to do with extended family or extended community, but yet when we can get to that space where we kind of just let that stuff stop eating at us, how much more clearly can we see God's future for us? And conversely, when we hold on to it so tightly that that is the lens through which we can see the future, it will be cloudy and it will not be clear. And I believe while God will still be with us, it will be more and more difficult for us to see where God is leading. So I encourage you this next week to tend to those spaces in your soul where you might be holding a grudge, holding back your experience of God, as well as those places where maybe you might need to step into a place of seeking forgiveness or acknowledging hurt. And by addressing all of that in our souls, individually and communally, maybe we'll see where God is leading us. Let us pray. God, for um, the spirit that moves us, the spirit that challenges us and makes us uncomfortable, but the spirit that is always with us, we give you thanks. We ask that you would continue to move through and amongst us as we tend and mend relationships in our lives so that we may all more fully see what you are calling us to be and who you're calling us to be in the world. We thank you for the spirit this day and for those gathered in this space as we continue to struggle and rejoice in being your people. We pray all this in the name of Christ and all God's people say. Amen. Um.